Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is modernizing the e-commerce supply chain with my friend Jason Murray. Jason is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Shipium. That's S-H-I-P-I-U-M. Shipium helps businesses deliver their shipments fast, free, and on time with the first enterprise shipping platform for modern operators. Before Shipium, Jason was a VP at Amazon, so he knows a thing or two about e-commerce and logistics. So check out our conversation. So how's it going, Jason? Great. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about this. E-commerce supply chain is not easy. So Jason, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Yeah, so my name is Jason Murray. I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Shippy. We focus, we have an e-commerce platform help that's focused on optimizing the e-commerce supply chain. So we do stuff like rate shopping, transportation optimization on the back end, delivery promise, order routing, and sourcing of orders from different nodes. All of those things that kind of bring costs down and increase speed for your e-commerce deliveries. I'm calling from uh, Seattle, Washington. Very nice, very nice. And the Blue Angels stopped by to celebrate you being on my podcast, so we might hear them in the background. <laughs> that, that is correct. That Yeah, Seafair is a, a second thing, and then they're mostly here for the podcast, though. <laughs> yeah. So getting back to it, modernizing the e-commerce supply chain, you say Shipium, it's not, a, is it a shipping software or is it managing the rest of the the functions? We think of it as shipping management software, but that the way to think about it is the supply chain is this, the e-commerce supply chain is a series of decisions, right? And if you do a good job early on with those decisions, you're going to get better outcomes on the back end. So what we're doing is obviously using as much data as possible to, to optimize each of those decision points, and then you get better results in terms of speed and cost. So for example, if you position your inventory correctly, you're going to be able to get it there faster and cheaper. If you decide how to route your orders correctly such that you maintain that inventory position, you also are able to get cheaper and faster shipping. And then when you get to the end, you have all this data about carriers, their performance, their cost structure, limits, et cetera. You can make a well-informed decision on which carrier you should choose to actually fulfill the order. Yep. Before we hit record, I was telling you something that's come up on the podcast lately, and that is... When I was in automotive, we had transportation costs and logistics costs that were, we thought, about 5 or 10% of revenue. And, and by the way, we had lots of full trucks going from a supplier to a factory or to an assembly plant. It was pretty predictable stuff. And when you can ship full trucks and when you can use the ocean freight, you're being very efficient with your costs. Now, when we talk about e-commerce, and you correct me if I go astray, 20, 25% of um, logistics makes up 20 or 25% of the revenues of these e-commerce companies. Yeah, that's a great, that's a pretty good estimate. And it varies depending on what types of items you sell and how fast you want to get it there, et cetera. But the way to think about it is just that e-commerce, the, the, when you're going to shop at a store, a lot of largely how that inventory got to the store is hidden from you. And you can use these kind of existing playbook of LTL and truckload to actually get it to the store, et cetera. When you're talking about an e-commerce order, the delivery experience 
is the shopping experience, right? The, the customer ultimately gets the box on their doorstep and how long it takes affects their buying decision, whether they're going to buy it or not, whether they want to buy it, right? And so I, I think the thing to understand is that shipping and logistics part of the organization is just very much tied to how the customer interacts with the website and how the customer experiences that shopping. And, and then on a secondary note, you just have a much harder problem in terms of you've got source one, you've got several sources, three to 10 fulfillment centers, for example, with a typical retailer, but then you have literally millions of locations that this stuff is going to, right? And it's not a limited kind of N times M fulfillment centers that you're moving or distribution centers you're moving between. It's much more about you've got millions of individual locations. You've got to package this stuff up in a way that, that it can be shipped to these individual locations. And then, like I said, You've got on top of that, the experience that the customer actually sees and feels and wants is tied directly to that process. And so inherently is just much more complicated from a logistics. Logistics is much more complicated on e-commerce type situation than it was in traditional retail. Oh yeah. And by the way, I was just thinking about this is when I go to Meyer, which is like Walmart here in the Midwest, uh, I go to Meyer. It's not a tech enabled experience. I don't ever think to myself, oh, I got to pull out my phone and do something here. Now, maybe that'll change, but I never look at that as a technology-enabled experience. Uh, maybe the self-checkout is. But but when I'm buying something via e-commerce, it is a technology-enabled experience. I want to be able to get the ping down my phone that package will deliver in the next hour. I might also want to see an email. And how that comes matters if the information's wrong, obviously, but it's also when we deliver it to that porch or knock on the door, whatever, that matters quite a bit. These are all, you're not delivering to a professional receiver. You're delivering to somebody who is an amateur and many who don't want to answer their doors. You got barking dogs, beehives, missing addresses. This is much, much more complicated. And again, the experience matters so much more because the experience you can manage it when I go to buy something at the store, they set it up. Now I can't necessarily ask the UPS guy or the FedEx guy or whoever to set this up. He puts it on the porch, knocks on the door and walks away. Yeah. And you have these kind of, you have millions of employees in these shippers, these carriers who, who are indirectly representing you, right? In Amazon's case, it's much more, they do a lot of themselves now. And that was one of the motivations for actually doing that is they wanted to control the experience as much as possible end to end. And that's been Amazon's MO. But yes, it's, it just, it definitely, how the customer kind of feels and interacts with the website is affected by by what happens in logistics. And I think us us logistics guys who are used to being more in the background, it's an uncomfortable position to be in, honestly. We have to talk to the COO, has to talk to the CMO. And for years, they've uh, avoided each other. Yep. And you mentioned Amazon. And we all know that Amazon has set the bar for this business in so many ways. And that just happens to be your background. So tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And tell us about a little bit about your career, including your Amazon experience. Yeah, I'm a I'm a kind of a rare bird in terms of this area, which I'm actually a Washington native. I grew up in. Oh, I didn't know there was such uh, a thing. <laughs> yeah, it's very uncommon. But I grew up in north of Seattle in a rural community. Rural community. It was. It's a lot less rural now. I'll say because this area over my lifetime has just changed dramatically. It's actually 
bustling and there's quite a bit going on at this point. And it was pretty sleepy back 70s, 80s, 90s, et cetera. And so it's been fascinating to watch the area grow up. But um, obviously, um, I went to the University of Washington and um, came out and I really am just forever will be grateful to the fact that we had this kind of growing tech community in the area and that that aligned with what I was trying to do with my life. And ultimately, after after a couple more tech-focused jobs, I went to Amazon in 1999 and I started working on logistics and it was obviously the tech, like the merger of tech and logistics. And I, or those days I was super focused on how we ran the fulfillment center, how we plan labor, how we manage inventory, how we did sort, pick, pack, all of the things that seem very common and normal now, it was figuring and figuring it out in those days. But honestly, I just fell in love with this notion of using software as a way to drive these physical, complicated processes. Um, 2008, 2009, I helped launch Fulfilled by Amazon, and then 2010, I took over what is called Scott or supply chain optimization tech at Amazon. And what we were doing there is building all of this technology to basically. optimize the e-commerce supply chain. And luckily for me, it actually coincided with when Prime was becoming a big deal. And so to some degree, what my job was, Prime became this major growth lever for Amazon. People, when they saw Prime, they bought four times as much. That's a public figure you can look up. Wow. Um, And yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And there's multiple reasons. One is one is you've spent money and so you obviously want to get your money out of it. But the other, the bigger, more important reason is you have this very reliable delivery experience you can build on and it just changes your whole perception of e-commerce and this started working the labeling of prime started working it started growing like crazy it became amazon's primary growth driver and my job to some degree was figuring out how to make that cost effective how do you make prime an actual profitable business by optimizing how you think about inventory planning transportation planning even building planning to some degree to optimize all of the all this way this stuff runs and so over the next seven years built this team from maybe 20, 30 people up to well over a thousand. I'm sure it's larger than that now, but I was hyper-focused on forecasting, inventory positioning, order routing, delivery promise, communicating to the customer, how we managed all of our carriers, transportation optimization, carrier selection, all those great things. And like I was saying, in the context of Shipium, you're collecting lots of data. You're using data late in the process to inform early in the process decisions and everything starts coalescing and in better outcomes for the whole thing. So it, it was it was a privilege to to have gone through that, watched Amazon go from a tiny sleepy bookseller in Seattle to this what it is now, which is this giant trillion dollar company. But obviously, as you can connect the dots, Shipium is largely a, you know, what the concepts and how we built tech and how we scaled all the stuff, we're taking that and applying those concepts to Shipium and trying to bring those concepts to the rest of the market. Wow, that's fantastic. Got so many questions about this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Off, so what year did Amazon start? What year did Jeff Bezos found Amazon? I think it was around 95. It was 94, 95 is what I want to say. So um, you got there in 1999. So I'm assuming yeah. he wasn't jacked up yet <laughs> like he is today. Yeah, no, I, was- I think he was that. They have those like memes where they've got... Jeff selling books in 99 and then they've got him with the vest on all muscled out and he's Jeff, Jeff sells whatever he wants like that. Yeah, that was, I was definitely the pre Jeff, jacked Jeff era. That's right. I take it you had some date dealings with him while you were there. 
Yeah, I had some interactions as it was a small company. My early, The kind of years that would have really been heavy, I was a software developer. And so I would say pretty limited interaction. My Most of my interaction with Bezos and the S team overall was more as I took over the supply chain and started building out that team. Because I think it, it was this critically important piece to Amazon retail that we get this figured out. Because I'm talking about it, sometimes you talk about things in hindsight and you overemphasize, like Prime was a growth driver. and I think in this particular case, I'm actually not exaggerating at all. It was this huge driver and the data wasn't even complicated, right? Like you you could be a just a, a good user of Excel and pretty quickly figure out that Prime was the growth driver for Amazon, right? And so you don't need to apply econometrics to see that this was what was going to pull up, pull Amazon out. Because I think 2008, 2009... It was a little bit questionable with kind of the longer shipping times. It was really hard for Amazon to fully compete with the entire retail market. And so Prime was the unlock that kind of brought what you would think of traditionally as what you're going to buy from a Target or a CVS or whatever. It People, I like to say, people buy on the spectrum. They're not, no one is, everyone has this fairly complicated calculus for what their decision to buy is, right? And one of them is my baby's crying, I need formula now, right? So that's a that's very obvious on one end of the spectrum. And some of it is I'm buying something expensive, I'm willing to wait because I can get this great discount for waiting, right? But in the middle, people are making this calculation of I can sit on my couch and get it two days from now. I really only need it by the weekend for a hike. So I'll go ahead and wait, I'll order it now and then I'll have to go out in the car. And so you're, you, what you're trying to do is close that gap with e-commerce. And there's always going to be a lot of Everyone is experimenting with what's the best way to do that. And it's going to, there's going to be failures and there's going to be things that didn't work and they're just too expensive to be sustainable. But everyone is continuing to play with this notion of how do we position e-commerce? How do we bring it to the market and make it, get it to this point that people want to use it? And I think like grocery is the next battleground and that's been obviously making a lot of progress also. Yeah, it's fascinating. And by the way, I've thought about this before. You're not the first person I've talked to about this, but yeah. Having former Amazon VP on your LinkedIn profile, I just feel like that is just like the the perfect credential. Like, just that's it. That's all I. That's all I did. That's enough because you've changed the world. When most of us talk about that Amazon experience, it really has changed. It reminds me. Uh, I'm going to sound like an old man here, but I'll say it anyway. My dad was a kid. He grew up in Dearborn, Michigan, and he said we'd be out playing baseball, me and my buddies. And he said, and Henry Ford would ride by on his bike and stop and say hello. And he'd say, hey, when are you guys going to come work for me? And he goes, he was already mostly retired. And I was like, yeah, but you're talking to somebody who changed the world. Granted, the people who brought on, and and he goes, yeah. And he goes, we'd be like, yeah, it's this old man Ford coming over here to talk to us. But you basically have experienced that world changing and you're part of it. And um, I think that's fantastic. One last thing. Uh, yeah, it was definitely a privilege. I think there was a lot of great people. A lot of things came together. Jeff Bezos was an amazing and inspirational leader. And to be kind of part of that journey, I just consider it to be, I'm very lucky to have been part of that. And I think I, I obviously contributed my parts to it, but it's it was a very exciting thing to see. Retail was ripe for disruption. And Amazon was front and the center in disrupting that whole process, for sure. Yeah. I want to take a quick time out to tell you, you can now listen to the logistics of logistics on Wreaths Across America Radio. I'll put a link in the show notes. Wreaths Across America provides informational, inspiring content about members of the U.S. Armed Forces, their families, and military veterans. Their mission is to remember, honor, and teach 
wreaths across America succeeds because of the generous support of the trucking community. Take a listen and please consider volunteering. So getting back to it, I heard somebody point this out not so long ago. I thought this was fascinating. They said, I don't know what Amazon's valuation is today, but let's just say at that time it was $1 trillion, right? And they said, and Jeff Bezos is worth $170 million. So $830 billion of wealth was created. I guess all of us, anyone who has a stock portfolio, you probably own Amazon. <laughs> and it's absolute, you were part of the rocket ship. But, but if you live in Seattle, the joke is that you own Amazon if you own a house because the housing prices also track with the stock. <laughs> so that's the, like, I, I own Amazon stock and I also own indirect Amazon stock through the housing market. So funny. But anyway. Very nice. So when and why did you start Shipium? I left Amazon in 2018 and I think it, it I, I really fancy myself as being a, I, I think I just enjoy the smaller company building process, right? And Amazon is at such a scale now that it's just, it's inevitable that it's going to be more complicated to get anything done. It should be. That's just how things work. And I, so from a personal level, I wanted to go get back into smaller company dynamics and be be like a little more on the front line, if you would say. When I left Amazon though, I did not plan on on uh, starting a, a company, right? It was really more about, I, I think one of the thoughts, my thoughts was maybe I'll become a CTO at, at the earlier stage private company. What happened though, was when, as through this process, I was trying to understand the market outside of Amazon. And if you're in Amazon, one of the one of the downsides of it is it's quite a bit of a bubble. Like you, you do- It's you, half the market. Lose, <laughs> yeah, you lose also the, the bubble and kind of a dome, like a, like, an, like a closed society. And you start to lose- what's happening in the rest of the world and all of your thoughts and biases are very kind of Amazon focused. And so I always say it takes a year to get the nanobots out of your system where you can actually go through this process. So I played around with a couple of things. I, I explored the freight forwarding space. This was back when Flexport was really picking up steam when in 2018 and stuff. And I did some consulting, did just was jumping around. But as I explored the space, the one thing that was just very apparent was I knew what what it takes to build a scale, scaled, efficient e-commerce operation. And that tooling was missing. There was a lot of focus on WMS, a lot of focus on like, we're going to build carriers to compete with UPS. So there's a lot of that out there. But this whole kind of coordination and optimization layer of the different stages of an e-commerce supply chain was largely lacking. And so we went, I, I ended up reconnecting with my co-founder, Mac Brown, who I also actually started within two days of Amazon in 1999. So we've been lifelong friends as a result of that coincidence. But I we started iterating on this and we ultimately started the company with this. When you're that early as a company, you don't know exactly what your product's going to be, but the North Star is... There's so much value you can accrete from this process that we have to be able to find something, right? There's And so the challenge over the last three years as we built up Shipium is it's figuring out how do you package this stuff and how do you basically make it consumable to the larger market? But I digress. But the point is, is that this it was not really a super planned out thing, but ultimately the need was there and I just felt like I had to take this adventure. Yep. So what, give me... Two or three bullet points. What problem do you solve for e-commerce companies? I think at the core, I think it's three things. Reduction in cost, increase in revenue from faster shipping, and then the effectively merchandising or communication of that faster shipping to the customer. 
which leads to revenue. So I went back to the second point, but those are the, that's the core thing that we're trying to go after. And so the problem you're solving in that space is you're helping reduce the cost and that's the re- reducing the cost of logistics spend or just the entire process. I think cost comes out in terms of multiple ways, right? The first, the most apparent, which is front and center on your P&L is transportation cost. We definitely are extracting that out of the system. The second is probably operational cost and burden that people have to do to manage as these e-commerce operations get more complicated. It requires more people, more analysts, more people to more infrastructure to run apparatus to run this whole thing. And so reducing that, definitely a big part of it. And then I think thirdly, just more or less a traditional SaaS type, SaaS company type sale. Anytime the software to do all this stuff is complicated and it really only makes sense. Amazon is pro, Amazon and maybe Walmart are probably the only two companies that can truly justify building this on their own. In other words, you cannot hire enough engineers and data scientists and we'll use AI now, right, to justify doing this for one company. It has to be, that complexity has to be spread across. So it's also this reduction in developer cost. Yep. So if I think about being an e-commerce seller, let's just say, um, do, do you work with the smallest or do they have to be a certain size before you can work with them? Our customer is typically a little bit larger. And I've used, I use the number 250K or 500K shipments before it matters. And really there's a couple of reasons why. The first is that you have to have some amount of scale to justify the fixed cost of going through this integration and the setup with Shipium. So that's the first thing. And then I think the second thing is just like the, typically you're not going to be able to, to justify having multiple carriers and running a more complicated operation until you have a certain size and scale. So if they're 250 or 250K or 500K shipments, those are small parcel shipments. By that time, I've got to be in a warehouse, right? I got a warehousing and fulfillment partner yeah, usually? Yeah, that's generally, usually at that point, they have some sort of their own facility that they're starting to, they're starting or they're close to it. And we definitely work with 3PLs too, where that's where you end up aggregating that smaller volume. Okay, so you're, so if I think about my, WMS, I I use that WMS to manage my inventory. I have, when I think about same day, next day, the challenge with that is I have to have my inventory multiple places, probably maybe two, three, four, five places across the country. So I, so I pick some warehousing company that has those locations somewhere on the West coast, somewhere in the middle, wherever, so I can support same day, next day. Now I, there's a WMS and that sometimes has an inventory uh, management piece to it. Where do you guys fit in that? That's one of the tech stacks. Yeah. Yeah. I would encourage you to think of it as this like sliding scale. People have like stores with inventory. They want to do ship from store and we can help with that. The shipping operations is not going to be as complicated. Sometimes they will have their own facilities and then they will offload some of the forward deployed inventory to 3PLs, et cetera, for some set of their inventory to be more in that that next day, same day. And we also can help with that. But no, I think back to your specific question, we are basically talking to the WMS. So you can imagine the WMS is going to help you pick stuff. It's going to help you sort it into individual kind of groupings that are associated with shipments. You're then going to pack it using the WMS. And at that point you have a box, it's got a weight, it's got dimensions. You're calling Shipium and saying, what do I need to, what shipping method should I use to get it to the customer by this date that I've promised them? 
and do it in the cheapest way possible. And we're sorting through their five to six carriers. We're looking at the, our transit time models. We're saying, yeah, you're, you're only 500 miles away. This UPS method is traditionally performed well. We're going to choose a ground method because that's significantly cheaper than air. And you can still hit your, ED, your estimated delivery date of Friday, that kind of thing. And that, by the way, I just talked to Mark Lavelle from Margo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we know those guys. Yeah. And he was saying faster shipping drives revenue. And he says, if you can get it there faster, people tend to buy more. Totally. That's the secret to the to the success of Amazon, right? I think speed and then, and then a second piece, predictability, and then communicating yes. that to the customer <laughs> drives revenue for sure. And by the way, if I wanted, it's, it's summer, so I'm not worried, but soon it will not be summer and I'll want to buy a sweater. If I want to wear a sweater on Saturday night and I say, uh, I want to order it on Thursday morning, I not only need the speed, but to your point, I need it to be predictably good. I need to be able to say, it's supposed to be here in a day, but maybe it gets here Sunday morning and I had to run out and buy a, a sweater at the last minute at the mall. Exactly. And yeah. And by the way, I got to tell you this, guys. I went out to the very nice mall here in the Detroit metro area. I won't mention the name because I don't want to be mean, but just wanted to buy a few shirts, just short sleeve shirts, just not no big deal, right? I couldn't find what I wanted. It's a funny thing. It's going to the mall has become a kind of a chore. And it's funny. I mentioned it to my sister and she said, Oh my God, me and my girlfriends were all just talking about that. We're used to buying online and the rest doesn't seem to work for us anymore. Yeah, I think it's like a deeper kind of internet trend, which is just, this is getting kind of meta and philosophical. The internet in general, when it came online, it really, what it did is it moved the whole, whole all of society away from this like 80-20 rule to we now the kind of tail is much longer and much thicker. And so people have specific interests, specific needs. And I, I think it affected us in ways that we don't even understand in terms of how, like I've heard people describe it as raw, weird, and, and the internet enabled that. And so there's like extreme versions of that that we hear about a lot more on the political spectrum, but more to the point, it's like you you end up, people have hobbies that are very specific. My I haven't, I have an 18 year old daughter who just graduated from high school and I don't think she watches almost any TV. It's all focused on like YouTube and that's where kind of all our entertainment comes from. And you think about YouTube, it's like millions of channels, not just the four yeah. or five that we grew up with. And so it's just that spread, but I'm rambling here. But the point is, is that it really did spread to e-commerce and people want, I think about my own buying behavior and it's, I can't buy woodworking tools from Home Depot, I have to buy these very specific German brand name tools that you can only get on the internet because norm before I would have had to drive hundreds of miles to find a store that covered these, right? And it, that has all been enabled. And people, once you're, once you make that jump, it's hard to go back. So yeah, you're right. You go to, I go to a store and you're like, I don't want this thing. I want this very specific other thing. And you don't have that. And what am I going to do? And so, yeah, I think I do believe early 2000s online shopping, what really drove it and picked it up in the beginning was skew selection and depth, right? And then Amazon did the perfect pivot in 28, 2008, where they took that deep skew selection and they turned it into how do we get people this fast, right? Which then further 
even spread this lead out. And but one of the things that's always mind blowing to me, and I'll stop here in a second, but the when you go to an Amazon warehouse, so I live in Seattle. There's a city, maybe I don't know, twenty fifty miles south of us, Kent, right, which has an Amazon warehouse in it. And if you go to that Amazon warehouse, you quickly realize there are literally a million different SKUs in that warehouse, and a million different SKUs. You can go very deep in a lot of weird areas compared to the largest WalMarts or maybe a hundred thousand SKUs, and that's nothing to. It's nothing to to like nothing that model of shopping that's amazing that they accomplished that but you can't really get that depth of skew coverage without technology to do the planning and this different model of consumption that we have with e-commerce yep and by the way i love what you're saying here because it, it all makes sense and i'll throw something else out there and again it's getting a little off topic but i think it's i think it's worth saying is I think our retail model is going to change. And I, I heard somebody say not so long ago, you mentioned Walmart has 100,000 SKUs. Could Walmart someday have a stores, maybe it's a concept that they have that has 20,000 SKUs. And you go, why would they want to have 20,000? It's easier to shop, right? We're getting older. And as an older country, people can go in and shop faster. And then maybe that concept store also has a fulfillment that says, Hey, if you need something that's a little out of the, I, I like this one spice that comes from the, from Mexico, that gets delivered to my house via fulfillment. But I'll throw something else out there. Going to the mall the other day, and by the way, this is a very nice mall. It has a lot of great stores. So when I went there, 20 minutes from my house, I went there. It wasn't a good experience because I couldn't find what I wanted. And I wandered around. And I believe that in the future, the retailers that we we go to actually get in the car, leave the house, go there are going to have to be an experience. Nobody bitches. Maybe after a while you bitch about going to a farm market or some really cool boutique food place where you're like, Oh, look at this $12 chunk of cheese. I need this. Oh, I need this bottle of wine. Those are cool experiences that you might not mind going to because it feels special. It's an experience for the rest ship it to my house. And I still want that experience to be nice, but it's a little different because I'm not looking for it to be, hey, the wife and I went out for the day. And, but anyway, getting back to it. Totally 100% agree. I think, and I think the, I'm bullish on the front of store, back of store concept. I think that's going to start getting some traction where you have fulfillment centers, lots of effectively fulfillment centers with a deeper SKU selection and sorting capability. And they're organized around efficiency for, picking, packing e-commerce, and then you have effectively a store in the front with less SKUs that's being replenished from that fulfillment center, but is also available for quick items. So I agree with that model yeah. 100%. And by the way, we all love Costco. Costco is my favorite store. Very few SKUs, but th what they do is they go out and curate the very best stuff. They get a yeah, great price exactly. on it. And when I go buy ibuprofen, I buy a lifetime supply, 800 pills, <laughs> but it's a great deal. Costco, Aldi, Trader Joe's, all very few SKUs, but we love those stores. I've used the example of Target. Target has a grocery store that I like very much. It's curated. They, I can't buy 20 different kinds of peanut butter there, but I, I only have one kind. So if they pick the right one for me, I don't care. <laughs> anyway, get way, way off topic. So getting back to it, you guys connect, you connect to my WMS and you help me pick the right software. And by the way, you use the example, pick this UPS service. 
speak to how many different service levels UPS has for moving shipments because I think it's enormous. <laughs> oh God, I what is the number? I'd guess probably thirty. I think you have various service levels. You have the international mix. You have you have the UPS mail innovation stuff where they use the post office. There's just a there's a lot of different options, and then you multiply that by multiple carriers. And you end up with a very confusing, frankly, just something that's that humans are not particularly good at sorting through, right? It's just too complicated to keep in your head. And so it, it's a much better plan to try to turn this into a math problem, as I like to say, where you're figuring out like, how well do these guys perform? I'm going to be able to predict that. How much does it cost specifically? And then I'm, we're going to choose it for you based on what your constraints are. So if I say I need it there, I need it at my house by... 9 a.m., there is a service. But if I exactly. say, I just need it tomorrow morning, I just need it sometime tomorrow, hopefully in the morning, but if it's mid-afternoon, I don't care. That's a different service and potentially a very different price. But if I, you have to be precise about this because we do know that customer satisfaction is involved in this. If it's supposed to be there by 10 and it gets there at one in the afternoon, now the product already has a stain on it. I'm already halfway saying, geez, oh, Pete, these guys don't know what they're doing. I needed it. I needed it before I left for, to go on my trip and it didn't get here. When I get home, I will always remember this as the shirt that got here too late. Yeah, exactly. No, we tend to, obviously, anytime you're dealing with fulfillment stuff, uh, physical processes, it's a stochastic model, right? And that's the reality. And I think what typically when we're working with a retailer, we're trying to figure out how much money do they want to spend versus that level of precision? And then we try to really trade those two things off. So if you want to, if you want to lean in, if there's a cost there, because there's always going to be the truck, the, the, the porch pirate, the truck gets breaks down, the something happens in the warehouse, they're out of inventory, right? It's not a, it's not like Google, right? Where everything is pretty much going to be a, every time it's going to be the same. There's going to be, there are physical processes. So there's some expectation that people are going to make mistakes. But what we're trying to do is really model out what is the chance of a mistake? How predictable is that? And then how much is the retailer willing to tolerate? And that's just the reality of living in this, in, in the world that we live in. So you can tell me for a UPS shipment going to this zip code on this date, yeah, I feel very, there's a very high confidence that this is good. And you're not basing it on what UPS told you. You're basing it on all of the data that you've collected from previous exactly. transactions. Exactly. And so we want to know, we know that this is a ground five-day method, but you're close to that fulfillment center. So you should not pay for error or guaranteed delivery. And that's the trick. And that's, I think their price structure has to be transparent. And anytime you have a transparent price structure like that, it's going to have, it's going to have room to move. And you also have different negotiations by carriers and that's also moving around. And so the goal here with Shipium is systems and software are just really good at figuring this stuff out. And it's a, just a perfect problem for machine learning and data science, right? Because it, it lets you, instead of this being a hunch, we can use this mass of data that we've amassed and use that to ultimately make these decisions. And that would make, that's, what makes it, that's what makes it work. Yeah. I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Greenscreens. That's greenscreens.ai. Greenscreens is a dynamic pricing technology for the truckload spot market that delivers buy and sell side market intelligence 
to help brokers and 3PLs grow and protect their margins. Freight brokers and 3PLs using green screens gain the following advantages. Faster pricing for both buy-side and sell-side transactions. Pricing that is more accurate and more likely to win profitable business. Guys, dynamic pricing is the next killer app. Hundreds of freight brokers are already using it because it enables them to develop faster, more accurate quotes. This is the time. Check out Green Screens in the show notes, greenscreens.ai. So getting back to it, if I'm an e-commerce company and I say, hey, I'm working with XYZ warehousing and they've got my stuff, do they already have, they might already be connected to Shipium. You might already be working with them. But what if I say I'm working with Shipium and will they, they connect your rates through their system? Usually it's a it's complicated is the answer, but typically there's a way usually to say it has a little bit to do with kind of the asymmetry of the retailer and the warehouse, right? So if the retailer is large, then they absolutely can say you should be using our rates and our decisions at that warehouse. And we're happy to pass them through the retailer to the 3PL, for example, or or directly connect on behalf of the retailer to the 3PL. And we've done both of those. Those are, they have, both have their advantages. I think the passing through is simple. Unfortunately, what it doesn't do is a great job of understanding it. You really want to know when the shipment's about to go out, I have the box in my hand. Here's how much it weighs. Here's what are the dimensions. Now decide how I should ship this because there might've been delays to the warehouse. But again, we can get close and approximate that depending on what the retailer is trying to accomplish. So are you already integrated with all those WMSs that are out there? I I would say most of them now at this point, we've worked with pretty much all the main ones. I feel like there's always a little bit of a, there's WMSs is a bit of a, a strange category. There's always a new one that pops up and I'm like, ah, I've never heard of that one. It's been 25 years, but somehow I've never heard of this. But the other thing that happens a lot though is WMSs are very common for people to build their own, which I think it's probably an artifact of if you go back 10 years, if these companies have been around a while, there just wasn't a great offering or they couldn't make it work. And so they, we, and then I think lastly, because again, you're talking about physical processes WMSs inherently have a bit of customization associated with them. And you just think about how the building is laid out, how things are structured. And we often will have a connector, but it's only about 80% of the way there. And we have to basically bring in a system integrator to glue the two things together. So you, you guys get paid like software as a service? Yep, that's right. Our model is software as a service. We're doing that very intentionally because we don't want to, we don't want to basically we want to sell you the fact that we're making really good decisions that have disproportionate value on the backside. We don't want to, you can imagine if we were getting kickbacks from certain carriers, it's going to be hard for us to not choose that. The incentives then become misaligned. And so it's very important that we keep the, we keep our kind of like, we're going to, when we decide this carrier for you or this method for you, or we give a delivery promise or we route based on, we want that to be a pure decision based on this is the best possible thing for the retailer who's paying us. Yes. Yeah. We all want that objective judge in the middle, not- Exactly. uh, Yeah. We say that we're a merit-based system. We'll obviously, we'll say that quite a bit, actually, that we try to be entirely merit and objective, right? Merit-based and objective. Okay. So you- if I have rates with UPS, I lo- they get loaded through Shipium and I might have rates with UPS, with FedEx. Now we just, it looks like we dodged a bullet with the UPS strike. Hallelujah. 
but there are all sorts of other system, other companies out there. So I just talked to Margo. Tusk Logistics has been on the podcast. I've talked yeah, to... Yeah, absolutely. Know those guys too. Sendel. Yeah. I just talked to Sendel. Yeah. So there's a lot of other... And by the way, I think we're going to see a lot more because it's strange. You don't see it very often in a market where you have two big dogs, so big and so prominent. And that's what UPS and FedEx, <laughs> there's no shame. They earned what they got here, but we do need other options. And so I can load... I could have... Yeah. As many as I want in your system. That's right. Yeah. And and I think you end up we end up choosing it based on on again performance requirements as well as cost. So what's gonna actually and then there's also constraints like are do you have some agreement around your limits, both on the you only can ship so many items through, what's the cutoff time? You want to make sure that you at least shut off ship a certain number to hit some sort of volume threshold, et cetera. All that's in the system and part of the math problem. Just to make a comment on the on the carriers in general, though, I think the beautiful thing about multiple carriers or these different carriers, right, is they tend to be very good at certain things, right? And they all have their, what their specialization is. And I, I think when you, uh, like, um, you work with a Mergo, right? They're very good at using the air network for this two-day shipments. When you work with a Viho, you end up, they've made their they've made significant ground using more of this gig workers and focusing on certain types of products. And I'm sure there's heavy bulky equivalents. There's, there's people that are more focused on certain regions. New York is hard to move around in. So I'm really good at getting to apartment buildings. And so you, you put all that together and you end up with different kind of healthy cost structures around these different things. I think what we're trying to do is basically, if you do have some structural advantage, we want to basically help you bring that forward. So the retailer knows how to choose and, and use those guys. And so it, the win ends up being on who's performing the best, who's the cheapest, et cetera. And that's important. Yeah. And by the way, companies price based on what they want and what they don't want. So if they say, I absolutely don't want to go to that region because it's not a good lane for us, you price accordingly. And so there, I'm sure UPS and FedEx are saying, yeah, there's certain lanes that we are very good for us because we're profitable. Those are the lanes we want to do, and we're going to price high on the things that we don't want. And hopefully, uh, using Shipium, I find out that, oh my God, that's exactly right up Tusk's lane. They want that one very badly, and they're pricing accordingly. So that's what we want is, uh, and again, you can't do this manually. It's virtually impossible. And by the way, I guarantee, as I'm saying this, there's people who are saying, we we make a few phone calls. We call UPS or FedEx or we go online and look in different systems. I have a password for UPS, a password for FedEx, and a one for USPS. And that is the wrong way to do things. Yeah, it's just, it's a good, it's a, I think it's just one of those things where there's a lot of, it's just, like I said, computers and software are very good at figuring this kind of thing out. And it's a great, it's a great use for software just because we can get, we can get highly precise about that decision and consider all of the factors that are involved and then come back with what is going to effectively be the the right answer and doing it manually you just struggle with this like things are changing under the covers fuel surcharges are changing hubs are having problems with performance and it's next to impossible for someone to consider all of that and that's so that's why we've that's why we're yes. doing. And by the way you said you also work with warehousing companies talk about what value you provide to them. 
so I would say like specifically 3PLs is what we've, we have several customers that are 3PLs and I mentioned threshold on size. And so one obvious thing is if, if they're essentially, I have warehouses, I'm bringing in multiple smaller customers. I'm now able to consolidate this volume in my building such that I have now a large amount of volume. And then now I'm able to work with Shipium and take advantage of all this optimization. But one of the challenges with 3PLs versus a retailer that's more present is that you have multiple tenants in your building. You have specific carrier configurations and parameters per each of those tenants. And sometimes, like I mentioned earlier, the tenant is bringing their own rates. Sometimes you're providing the rates. And in those scenarios, we end up being more useful as a way for the 3PL to manage the complexity. And then they use our data set to ultimately, in some cases, they'll mark up their own rates and we're able to bring the cost down on that or even help them model what those costs should be. Yep. And I'll throw something out there. Somebody might say, I'll save you money. We now know that if you're a warehousing and fulfillment company or an over-the-road guy, you can't win the business if you can't save them money. So you could look and say, this is just a cost savings. It's a revenue enhancer because you aren't getting that business unless you can save them money. And you can save them money, which allows them to, to talk to an, somebody and say, hey, your current guy isn't working out. We'll save you 5%. So it's revenue for you. We have to start framing it that way because I think so many warehousing and fulfillment companies look and say, oh, okay, cool, another software. But if that software doesn't help me win new business, yeah. do I really want it? Do I really want it? <laughs> I think one thing that's interesting is just this is a little bit maybe down the rabbit hole, but one of the ways that 3PLs would traditionally charge for transportation is they would just take a markup on the transportation, right? I If the retailer who's using the 3PL spends a million dollars in spend, then the 3PL takes, say, 2% of that or something. I don't know. So they take the cut, right? The problem with that is, is you have misaligned incentives where FedEx benefits, the 3PL benefits, but the retailer doesn't benefit. And so the, because effectively the more money that they're spending, the more th money the 3PL is making. And so what we're seeing a lot of is people are moving more to the 3PL will fix the rates and then they will effectively they'll charge on top of it. And then that motivates the right behavior where it's, I want to get this as cheap as possible. And, and if you're talking about things like 4PLs, then you even inject, okay, you also should position things in the correct location because that's going to that's gonna have implications on cost and everything else. And so I think there's, a, there's always challenges with aligning incentives correctly. And that's, it's particularly present in the retail, in the logistics industry. Yeah. And by the way, if you're at a big company, and I'm just thinking, if I was at one of these Walmarts and then I'm working with somebody who who's giving me rates and they're marking them up. I want to know. So if costs went up 10% and then my, my 3PL also said, I'm going to add, we're getting 5%. And so they're looking at, they're saying, hallelujah, thank God for inflation. Thank God for the Teamster strike. It's just the wrong, <laughs> oh my God, gas went up. This is fantastic. And meanwhile, if I'm in the, I'm in the big company, they said, costs went up. Now, is it the 3PL cost that went up or is it the transportation cost? I don't know. I don't get that information. And the answer is both and it doesn't work. And I've advised very large shippers that spend $100 million a year. They know that they need to talk about transportation costs and the cost of the 3PL separately to their management. And 
So it's anyway, I've gone way over my time, but so let's wrap this bad boy up. Give <laughs> me your final thoughts on what it takes to modernize the e-commerce supply chain. I think for me, you have to bring tech as a first class citizen and, and at the table as part of this discussion. And I think people are pretty underinvested in kind of what it's going to take. And I think it it's this overwhelming to bring like that tech forward in your organization. It's a little bit overwhelming because it feels like I'm bringing all these new things, but ultimately you're going to make it up tenfold at least in terms of the amount of savings you hit in terms of your operational costs. And so bringing systematic optimization bringing these decision points into your system. I definitely encourage people to, to walk into it. We, we think of our platform as being multiple, pro we have multiple products on the platform, there's multiple pieces, and it's possible to start with carrier selection and then move to order routing and then move to delivery promise or whatever order you want to do it. They obviously, the more uh, we have, the better job we can do because the, the decisions are tangled together and tend to use each other and lever off of each other to improve. But you have to start somewhere and it's important that you start investing in actually the tech in your organization. Otherwise you're being penny wise and pound foolish in terms of I'm, I'm maybe not spending as much on tech, but I'm actually losing it on the back end. And it's important to tile that together. Yeah. And by the way, the whole time we've been talking, all I keep thinking about is everybody wants to compete with the Amazons. Working with you is like getting a little bit of the Amazon experience on your team. And yeah, a little bit need. of the juice. That's right. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think, well, I think it's the a thought Amazon, process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think the, the Amazon, there's multiple factors, like I talked about in the beginning, that make up Amazon, but tech is a huge one. And we're trying to level the playing field with that, at least. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. So I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, Jason. People who are killing it in this space, who else should I interview? So I think you've maybe talked to Dave Glick before, but he's a good friend of mine, worked at Amazon for years. Oh, I would love to talk to him again. I have not talked to him in a minute. Yeah, I should ping him. Jim Jacobs is a guy that I work with at Green Mountain Technology. He's been in the freight audit space and I before that, it. FedEx and everything else. Another good guy. And then I'll add one other person. If you haven't talked to Laura, Laura Behrens Wu from Shippo, I think she's a great interview also. Laura Behrens Wu. Is she the founder over there? Yeah. If you haven't talked to her, she's great. I don't think I have. I talked to my friend Jonathan used to work over there. Uh, John oh, okay. Kish. Yeah. He's over at Orderful, another great company. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah. I'd love to talk to her. If you can give me your email address. Excellent. So what conferences will we see you and the Shipium team at? We're at Manifest next year. There. I think we've, we've got Parcel Forum coming up later this I think in a month or two, drawing a blank on the exact timing. NRF, we're always at. And then I think the rest of the conference agenda is still being worked out for next year. But those are the big three. Excellent. Excellent. So what I'll do, Jason, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, a link to your website, and any other links you and your marketing team give me, I'll put those in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you. And thank you so much for taking the time today. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. 
You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.